Welcome to American History Untucked. I'm your host, David Silkenet. My guest today is Chris Cameron, an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. When I first came up with the idea for American History Untucked, Chris, I think, was the first name that popped into my head as somebody I wanted to have on as a guest. Chris has an extraordinary story. He was born into poverty. His parents were both addicted to drugs had a very rough childhood. He was moving around a great deal, began both selling and using drugs at a a very young age. He simultaneously demonstrated enormous academic promise and a compulsion for stealing and other kinds of criminal activity. He spent several months in prison as a result of a drug conviction, comes out of prison, goes to college, goes to graduate school, and emerges as one of the most promising young academics out there. So in our conversation today, we talk about Chris's research, his book that's coming out shortly on the early abolitionist movement, talk about some other projects that he's working on at the moment, but we mostly talk about his childhood and about his path to becoming a historian. Here's my conversation with Chris Cameron. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So you are in Boston right now? Am I, uh... Yes, I am. And so what, what are you, you're usually in Charlotte, so what are, you, what are you doing in Boston? I'm on an NEH fellowship at the Massachusetts Historical Society, uh, working on another book project, this one on liberal religion and uh, slavery in early America. Okay. And so you got the whole year there? Yep. Yeah, I got the whole year there. Uh, it started in September... Um, my fellowship actually just ended a few days ago at the end of April, so I have a couple more months up here uh, to do research at other area archives that I didn't get to work at as much. Uh, Harvard Divinity School has a lot of great stuff for me, as well as the Boston Public Library. That's really cool. I haven't, I've never, you know, I've always done sort of these short-term fellowships where I have a month here and two weeks there, but yeah, a year uh, is a good thing. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I feel very fortunate. I applied for the same fellowship probably three or four years in a row. Yeah. So uh, just uh, pure persistence, I guess, paid off. So I was thinking back over the, the weekend, uh, recording this on, on Monday, uh, to when I first met you, and I don't think you, you probably don't remember this, but uh, the first time I remember meeting you, uh, we were both at UNC. I was... I think my last year of graduate school, and I think you were in your first year of graduate school. Mm-hmm. And we were present, both presenting at the, I guess this was the first Triangle early, uh, triangle yeah. American History Colloquium, which has become sort of a big thing, but then it was... It was like the, the one right before the official first one. I think I think it that was wasn't even student... the official first one? That no, was... it, it wasn't. Yeah, okay. 2008 was the official first one, yeah. Okay, so it was the, the, the zero with... Uh, African American history colloquium, but uh, I remember. We were, so we were both presenting. You were a first year graduate student. I was, I think, last year, and I went up and gave my paper, and, and it was, uh, you know, I rambled for fifteen minutes, and it was thoroughly mediocre. But you know, I figured I was a you know much more senior graduate student than you were, and then you went up and spoke for fifteen minutes and gave the most eloquent conference paper I think I have ever heard. <laughs> And it was the most sort of erudite, historiographically nuanced piece. I don't even remember what you were talking about anymore. I was just so floored with the presentation and your sort of not only the, the content but the skill presenting it. 
And yeah. about halfway through, I realized you didn't actually have any paper in front of you, and you were doing that all from memory. And I thought to myself, God, this is, you know, one of the most impressive pieces of, of intellectual acumen I've ever seen. Uh, you know, and I knew that you'd be sort of somebody to be reckoned with in, in the sort of years to come if that's what you're doing in your first year of graduate school. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, funny thing is, Heather Williams... Um, Actually, she asked me afterwards if, if I do that a lot, if I get up and just give presentations from memory. And I said, well, yeah, whenever I can. And she said, you probably shouldn't do it in conferences because people will get unsettled and start <laughs> to, they'll, they'll wonder where your notes are or if you have something in the back that you're looking at. And they actually won't listen to your paper quite as much. <laughs> And I think that was the last time that I've done that. <laughs> okay. I, I, you know, when I lecture in class, I usually don't use notes or anything. But at like a formal conference, I always give a paper now. <laughs> okay. Well, historians are known for being, at best, fairly mediocre public speakers. You know, <laughs> lots of conference papers that are, uh, you know, where their people's heads are buried in the page. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's a hard thing to do well, but, uh, you know, I was just so impressed to see. But then, so I, I remember thinking about this, and, and then I, it was, you know, years later that I read your your uh, autobiography. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's sort of hard to talk to somebody who's younger than me who's written an autobiography. <laughs> but, but, you know, that sort of put the whole thing in an entirely different frame for me. And about how, you know, I was even more impressed with, with the presentation given the kind of experiences you had just only a few years beforehand and what your life was like mm -hmm. uh, before we talk about the, the many lives of, of chris cameron which is the, the title of your your memoir i was curious if you could tell me about the sort of thought process that went into deciding to write you know a memoir at a relatively young age mm-hmm well um I'd been asked to come and speak to different uh, church groups and different educational groups throughout uh, graduate school. Um, I spoke at churches all across the Chapel Hill area. Uh, once uh, a reverend at a church that I joined, the AME Church in Chapel Hill, once he got wind of my story, he kind of you know, started telling others about it. Um, so I started getting these invitations to speak about it. And then um, the Upward Bound program at UNC Chapel Hill, which tries to help African-American high school students get into college and achieve well once they get there. Uh, they asked me to come speak a couple different times, and uh, as well as the McNair program. And I just realized that it seemed to be a st my story seemed to be one that people were interested in. And a lot of people would come up to me afterwards and say, you know, this really gave me inspiration or, or whatnot. And I thought, well, let me go ahead and write this all down. So... Um, I think it was the summer after my first year as a professor, so summer of 2011. I just took, you know, that summer and wrote it all out uh, in a couple of months. And so uh, for those people who haven't, you know, read it, uh, you know, the story starts off with you growing up in a in a family that I think dysfunctional is probably a, an understatement. I wish, I wish we were dysfunctional. dysfunctional. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that would have been good. <laughs> so, so you grew up in in New Hampshire mostly, I guess, right? And and in the Bronx. Can mm -hmm. you tell us? Do you talk to us. You want to talk a little bit about what your childhood was like? And uh... yeah, uh, 
never really staying too settled in one place. So I was mainly in New Hampshire and the Bronx, but we'd be in, in one for a year, maybe two years, and then move back down to the Bronx back and forth, uh, primarily because my mother was a drug addict. My stepfather was a drug addict, and they were just kind of running the streets, hustling, doing what drug addicts do, you know. So we moved around quite a bit, and I got sort of, uh, uh, introduced to a criminal lifestyle from a very, very young age. I mean, I, I remember being eight years old and seeing my mom and stepdad breaking into somebody's house so they could rob them to get drugs, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably started stealing uh, myself when I was 11 or 12 years old. And uh, I remember I got caught in high school stealing mm-hmm. and got suspended for about a week or so, went back home, uh, and my stepfather said, you know, it's not a big deal that you're stealing, but you just got to figure out how not to get caught. So that, you know, that that's my kind of cultural yeah. upbringing, right? Uh, it's not don't steal. It's just how do you not get caught? Yeah, that's not the so, lesson you want to tell somebody in high school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, that was that was just sort of uh, one example of, of the type of upbringing that I had. And, you know, with both of my parents. Uh, parental figures being drug addicts, it was only a matter of time before I got into that myself, you know, probably started smoking uh, marijuana when I was 10 or 11 years old, uh, something like that. And, you know, by the time I was 16 years old, I was dealing every drug you can think of, using most of them too. You know, but one of the things that that struck me reading is is even in these periods of your life in which you're you're engaging in... uh... You know, less than in, in retrospect, uh, socially appropriate behavior, or at least maybe it was socially appropriate given the context. You're you're living sort of two lives simultaneously at the same age that you're, you know, yeah, start smoking yeah. marijuana. You're also, you know, be, you be end up becoming the well, your junior high valedictorian, and you're spending your time uh-huh. reading encyclopedias about going to Ivy League schools and. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was an interesting thing because I think the first time I got suspended from school was when I was in the sixth grade, um, and it might have been for smoking cigarettes. I'm not sure, uh, but my punishment was being grounded for my parents, and I started reading all these encyclopedias and thinking about college and stuff. So that that sort of dual lives started probably when I was ten or eleven years old. Mm. Um, when I was twelve, we moved down to the Bronx. And I went to seventh and eighth grade in the Bronx. And um, I, I'd probably lived in New Hampshire a lot more up until that time period. So I just, I really didn't fit in with a lot of the other kids, you know. Um, this is actually an experience that a lot of mixed race uh, people like myself um, have when they're in sort of a, around one half of their culture, or the other half just not really feeling 100% home at in either one. And that was certainly the case for me when I lived in the Bronx. So I actually um, stopped running the streets and doing all that stuff there. Yeah. And I was mainly in the library reading books and um, just kind of uh, sticking to myself. But on Christmas vacations, spring breaks, things like that, I would go back up to New Hampshire and be just a completely different person. Which is a complete reversal of, of the sort of cultural stereotypes we exactly. have about those two places. Exactly. Yeah, you'd think that in you know the Bronx I'd be out on the corner uh, selling for somebody or something like that, and then in New Hampshire I'd be kind of taking it easy. Um, but it was, the opposite was definitely true for me. Yeah. 
So I mean, there's all these stories in the book, which which I highly recommend everybody but read. But you know, the, you know, you end up going to a, a prep school, you get a scholarship, and you're simultaneously one of the best students, but you're, you're stealing from everybody in the school and uh, yeah, um, robbing backpacks for for graphing calculators and all kinds. Yeah. of Yeah. I mean, just when I went there, it was very hard because, you know, it was on the trails of me being named valedictorian in my junior high school. So in that sense, I had a lot of confidence in my academic uh, abilities. I thought I would do really well. But then I just I had been raised to get over on anybody, to take advantage of anybody that seems weaker. Mm. And those rich kids that I was going to school with just I mean, they were just leaving money hanging around, you know, And it was just, it was almost impossible for me not to take advantage of that situation. And, you know, my stepfather didn't help things because when I stole the graphing calculators, he was basically my fence uh, <laughs> down down in the Bronx, yeah. you know, and taking his cut for himself as well. So it's just, uh, yeah, again, they sort of dual lives where mm-hmm. I'm spending most of my time studying. But when I get out of running cross country earlier, I'm going through people's backpacks. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> did, they, did the kids at... This was at Canterbury, I guess. That they yeah. know much about you or your background when you got there. Um, no, no, I tried to keep that as much to myself as possible because I was embarrassed. You yeah. know, here were kids that had grown up in mansions and had every opportunity life can afford, and mm-hmm. back in the Bronx, I'd been living in a one-bedroom apartment with seven people, and both of my parents were addicts, and they could barely even afford to buy me a sports coat to wear to class every day. You know. Sure. Um, so I just I wanted to keep as much of that um, out of their views as possible. <clears throat> you know, the, the story you tell is that you, you you get kicked out of I guess you get kicked out of Canterbury and then you end up after a whole series of events uh, dealing drugs uh, and getting arrested and mm-hmm. spending some time in spending some time in jail. Uh, yeah. What was it that that made you decide to 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 go in a different path than that because it looked like it was uh, you know between these these two personalities it looked like the one side was winning out by the time you were 18 or 19 mm-hmm. even though i got kicked out of canterbury it was probably one of the most significant um parts of my young life just because when i got arrested and we're coming up on 13 years i got arrested on june 28th 2001 um, I, I would go to Valley Street Jail the next day and I'd spend the following eight months there. But the day that I got arrested, when I was sitting in a holding cell in Nashua, New Hampshire, I looked back on the past couple of years on what I had thrown away with Canterbury, on you know being my junior high school valedictorian, all the opportunities that I had. If I didn't go to Canterbury, I had actually gotten into the Bronx High School of Science, okay, which yeah. is uh, one of the best schools in the city. Uh, High schools in New York City, you actually have to apply to some of the oh. elite ones. Everyone has their neighborhood school. Yeah. But Bronx High School of Science is probably one of the best public schools in the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I just, just for record, I applied there and I don't think I got in. Okay, so, uh, okay, yeah. So, I mean, I just I realized that I had all of these opportunities despite um, getting into a life of crime. I had opportunities that... Other, a lot of my other friends didn't. You know, I, I used to run the streets with a lot of kids who never made it past eighth or, or ninth grade or when they went to school, they just they didn't do very well, right? 
Um, and that wasn't me, even though I was obviously no better than any of them because I was doing the same stuff. I just knew that there was a different life that was available to me if I, if I made some better choices. So mm -hmm. I decided that day, that first day, even before I went to jail, that I'd be different. You know, whether I had to spend a year in jail or whether I had to spend four or five, it was sort of up in the air at that point. But I knew that things were going to be different. Yeah, well, I noticed in the in the memoir, one of the, one of the first things you do after you, I guess you're in the holding cell, you start doing push-ups. Yeah, yeah. Because you yeah. figure, like, I have to do something, and, and this is what I have the opportunity to do, given, given where I am. Exactly. I mean, you're just sitting in the cell, and it would be the same, really, for the next eight months, right? I was in a maximum security unit for most of the time, so I only got out of my cell two hours a day. Um, there was a GED class that I went to for about a month and then I took the GED test and passed it and I couldn't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you could go to the law library for maybe an hour a week or so, but there just weren't many opportunities for self-improvement. So I figured uh, exercising, sort of disciplining myself, that would be one good way. And then just reading any book that I could get my hand on. Was the library any good? No, the library was not that good, but um, you could have people send books to you. Um, so I had uh, my grandmother, I had a couple of friends um, sending me books, and you know they, they had a few decent ones there that I kind of read over and over. Um, John Grisham, they seemed to have all of his books, and I, I got hooked hmm. on those uh, while I was in jail, but... Um, yeah, so that was that was really all I did those eight months, just read and write people letters and work out and yeah. um, just kind of keep my head down. <clears throat> well, one thing that reminded me of uh, that your your memoir reminded me of, and, and you make sort of references to him throughout the text is is the the autobiography of Malcolm X that has a similar mm -hmm. sort, of, sort of narrative arc to it about about what his experience was like, and then and then going to going to prison and then coming out of it a different sort of person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly see our stories uh, as kind of similar, although, I, I mean, I hate to even compare myself to somebody like Malcolm X, you know, yeah. um, just because of everything that he's achieved. If I could do a tenth of that in my life, I'd be very grateful. He, he spent eight years in prison. Yeah. You know, I, I spent eight months. Um, but it is, it is very similar, right? We both kind of grew up on the streets. Um, got into trouble at a real young age and then kind of turned things around at a relatively young age too. And it's not a story that you see a whole lot. Um, the recidivism rate for people convicted of uh, felony drug charges is well over 90%. Yeah. You know, so. So the, so the day you walked out of prison, what, what were you thinking you were going to be doing? <sighs> um, I had no clue. I was, I thought maybe I would go to law school. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I'd begun to think about that, but I, I really just didn't know. Right. I didn't know. Um, I, I was on a strict probation program, so I knew that there were a lot of things that I had to do to fulfill my probation. So mm -hmm. I had to go to like group counseling and do volunteer work. And I also had to take two community college courses. Mm -hmm. Um, for most people on that program, they would make them get their GED, but I'd gotten that while I was locked up. So they told me to just take two uh, college-level courses. It, it didn't even have to be community college. It could have been, you know, uh, how to be an electrician or sure. something, just something kind of post-high school. Um, 
And within a couple of months, I registered for a poli-sci class and a human growth and development course at the local uh, community college. Mm -hmm. And that's just where I sort of found my way. I realized again that, oh, yeah, you know, I used to be a really good student. Um, And now that I'm not uh, selling drugs and using them, I'm kind of good again, right? So how did you get from from that to deciding to to go to graduate school and uh, and a historian? Just kind of slowly but surely. Um, Those first two classes that I took to sort of fulfill the requirements for probation uh, did really well, got A's in both of them. And uh, then my curfew was lifted, like a couple of hours, and I could see uh, the counselors and the probation officers starting to trust me and realize, like, oh, okay, this, this feels pretty good. So I took a couple of more. Um, I got A's in both of those, and eventually I didn't even have to go see my probation officer anymore. Um, and then just figured, you know, okay, I'm really good at this. I can't think of anything else that I want to do. I'd worked as a roofer for a little bit just after getting out of jail, and I knew I really didn't like that and probably wouldn't like any other kind of construction jobs or anything, which is what most of my family members do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I figured I'll just kind of stick with it. So I think I did about a year's worth of credits at the community college and um, started to get a little bit ambitious, and that's when I really decided that I'd be a lawyer. Um, and transferred to a four-year school in the spring of 2004. That was Keene State College um, out in western New Hampshire. Um, And from there, I just kind of, I think I took most of my gen eds originally, um, but then got into history courses a couple of semesters in um, and had some really great professors at Keene State who uh, encouraged me, uh, tried to get me to major in it, which I eventually did my senior year, I think, mm. um, after changing around a bit. Um, but also, I applied for the uh, McNair Undergraduate uh, Research Fellowship, um, which is kind of similar to what I mentioned for Upward Bound, except it tries to get minority or first-generation college students uh, into graduate programs mm. where they're underrepresented. So... Um, You know, it could be, well, African-Americans in really any field, or it could be males in nursing or uh, women in engineering or, you know, uh, anything like that. So I did that one summer. Um, At that point, I was still thinking I'd be a lawyer. I figured, oh, maybe I'll get a JD, PhD, or a JD and a master's or or something like that. Um, But after a great research experience over that summer and just realizing the type of life that I could have as a history professor, I decided to kind of switch routes um, and go to graduate school instead of law school. And so why did you decide to go to UNC? Um, It was sort of random. Uh, They just had us do research during the uh, McNair program Mm -hmm. on the types of schools. And I I hadn't really heard much about UNC, but I uh, had heard of Duke and applied there. Um, and they told us to, you know, write the professors that you're thinking of working with and just introduce yourself. And so I wrote to Peter Wood, who was still uh, on the faculty yeah. then. Um, but he wrote me back and said, you know, uh, I'd really like to work with you, but I'm retiring. I'm going to face retirement. I'm only going to be here for another year or so. But you should really think of working with uh, my former graduate student, John Sensbach, at University of Florida. And he said Chapel Hill has a great program, too. So at, at that point, I had applied to five schools, 
and then I added Florida and Chapel Hill to the list and ended up getting into both of them um, and picked Chapel Hill because uh, outside of Duke, it was my top choice. I um, mean, I didn't get into Duke, so mm. uh, then it became my top choice and they gave me a great funding package. And, um, and I, wanted, I wanted to experience something new as well. I got into the University of New Hampshire's PhD program with full funding. Um, but, you know, I'd spent most of my life in New Hampshire. Sure. I wanted to just... Um, and and not all of it happy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Most of it unhappy, actually. So I just wanted to kind of get away, experience something new. Um, I would end up back in the area most summers to do research on my book on uh, black abolitionists in Massachusetts, but mm -hmm. I was very happy with the decision. Okay. So, so how did you get on to, to black abolitionists? Um, well, that was actually what I did my uh, McNair research for the summer before my senior year. I did a... Uh, I did a paper on Olao de Equiano's interesting narrative um, and uh, just the role of uh, moderate black abolitionists in the movement during the 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, I, I think I first read that book in uh, uh, Introductory History Colloquium, where we just had to write a 10-page research paper um, using his narrative as our primary source, and then I kind of developed that for that senior paper. And... Um, at UNC, I'd planned on doing sort of a transatlantic study of black abolitionists, um, but kind of slowly but surely decided to uh, have more of a narrow focus um, looking at blacks in Massachusetts and their roles. Well, I think one of the things you, you, you did, I think you went through graduate school in like four years or something ridiculous like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I finished in four years. Which is about half the time that lots of people take. Mm-hmm. And so I think probably narrowing that helped a great deal. Yeah, yeah, that was part of it. I knew that if I did um, an Atlantic history, that I would have to spend probably six months to a year um, in England doing research, uh, which I wasn't opposed to in theory, but in practice, I, I really did want to finish in five years. That mm -hmm. was my goal. And I thought that that just wouldn't be practical if I had to spend a year overseas doing research um, at that point. So mm. decided to kind of narrow it down quite a bit. And, um, and it, it worked out. I was able to finish it in a pretty short amount of time. So, so what, what is it you think that, that historians who have looked at, at abolitionism have missed that, that the book is really trying to, to add? Mm -hmm. um, well, one of the main things is the tie between Puritanism and the anti-slavery movement. Um, I think a lot of the literature on that, and it's not a very well-developed field, um, studies of Puritanism and abolitionism are. They're just not really looked at in tandem. Um, but I think Puritan theology, if not Puritans themselves, uh, did play a significant role in, um, in their influence on Africans in the colony of Massachusetts from the 1740s up through the 1770s. I was able to go and um, document the presence of blacks in a number of significant Puritan congregations in Boston um, from this era of the Great Awakening up until the American Revolution. Um, and if you look at blacks' writings, you can see this, uh, the language of providentialism and um, the language of Puritanism in their, in their ideology. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, but also just to show the critical importance that African Americans had on the earliest stages of the anti-slavery movement. 
Um, the general narrative of American abolitionism is that the Quakers uh, were the ones really driving things during the 18th and early 19th centuries. Then after the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, the Quakers sort of fell back a little bit. Um, there was really a lull in all abolitionist activity up until the 1820s, and then things sort of picked up again with William Lloyd Garrison and other more radical people yeah. later on. So I'm arguing that um, what we actually see is that Quakers were not the most dominant group. Maybe if you look at Philadelphia, um, but if you look at the New England region, African Americans sort of initiated a lot of um, tactics and strategies that helped build this anti-slavery movement from the ground up. And they did so starting in the 1770s. <clears throat> you mentioned Peter Wood earlier, uh, and he was one of my mentors as an, as an undergrad. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and he, he, I remember him, this was been you know, 15, 16 years ago. But in a class, you know, he said, you know, some people say that you know, Quakers were the first abolitionists. He says, well, no, they were the first white abolitionists, maybe. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> black people knew they didn't like slavery from the very beginning and yeah. didn't need any white people to tell them that. Um, and that, you know, that, that occurred to me when I was an undergraduate and I was just, I was kind of identifying with Equiano who mm -hmm. had been enslaved for, um, a number of years, ended up being able to purchase his own freedom. And I thought, you know, if I was Equiano, I would do everything that I could to help out other slaves. And that's what he did, right? He was uh, one of the more popular abolitionist speakers uh, during his time period and became the richest black man in Britain from sales of his autobiography. And I just thought if I was a former slave, you know, I, the first thing I would do is see what I could do for other slaves. slaves sure. Um, so that that really drove the project from uh, its inception. <clears throat> and so I guess that kind of I guess feeds into some of the projects you're I guess you're working on the 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 plea to our own cause book is coming out what later this year? No, uh in June. In yeah, June. Next, oh, yeah, next, next month. Next month. Oh wow. Yeah. Congratulations. That's going to be you. wonderful. Have you gotten a copy yet? No, I haven't. Oh, you will enjoy getting that first copy. Oh yeah, I can't it's, wait. In some ways, it's kind of anticlimactic because you're so excited about it coming. But it's—I uh, remember, you know, when I got my first book and uh, copy showed up in the mail. It was uh, very, very strange to see this thing you had worked on for years uh, between covers with a dust jacket and the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, so congratulations on that. But you've got the, you, you know the the first project I think feeds into the two books you've been working on on now on on. Uh, Religious thought and African Americans and, and anti-slavery. Uh, I guess still mostly in New England. You're looking um, for one project. Yes, the one the project that I got the NEH fellowship for at the uh, MHS. Mm -hmm. That is on um, Unitarians, Universalists, Transcendentalists, and the different ways that they engage with slavery, either mm -hmm. as um, as radical abolitionists, as colonizationists, and some of them as pro-slavery thinkers. Mm -hmm. um, that work isn't necessarily in African-American history per se. There, there really weren't a lot of black Unitarians, a, a few more Universalists, mm -hmm. um, but, but not very much. Mm -hmm. um, that's just kind of a intellectual or religious history of, um, of kind of a couple of sex uh, engagement with slavery. Um, but that did grow out of the first project. In yeah. the first project, I was dealing a lot with um, uh, Puritans and Calvinist polemical writings during the later 18th century, and I saw a, a huge concern of theirs was this sort of growing rational religion 
um, that they saw. And even for sects like the Unitarians, they really equated them with uh, deists and atheists. So I just sort of tucked it away while I was working on my first book. But once I finished, I kind of went back and just really became intrigued by the way that members of these more liberal sects engage with slavery. Have you had a chance to talk to, I know you're still only sort of halfway through this project, I guess, but have you had a chance to talk to uh, modern day Unitarians and Universalists about uh, what you found? I have, I have. Uh, actually, um, just a couple of days ago, I gave a, uh, a lecture for the Unitarian Universalist History and Heritage Society um, over at Harvard Divinity School. And mm. so that group is mainly... Unitarian Universalist ministers uh, from around Massachusetts and New Hampshire, um, Rhode Island, and there were also some uh, Harvard Divinity School graduate students that are planning on becoming UU ministers. Um, so that that was the first time I've had the opportunity to do that, uh, and it was really great because I found that you know UUs are very passionate mm -hmm. and knowledgeable about their own history, uh, but the history of UUs engagement with slavery is one that just really probably only three or four scholars have written on, and those works are about uh, 25 to 30 years old. Um, so it's not a topic that um, they knew a lot about, but mm -hmm. one that they certainly did care about, and that some thought could really uh, be useful in motivating um, modern uh, fighters against slavery, modern abolitionists. Mm. <clears throat> you know, one thing I've noticed, uh, I've gone to new churches at various points in time, and and they are very keen to claim uh, pretty much any abolitionist they can find as being a, a Unitarian or would-be Unitarian uh, at some point in the 19th yeah, century. Yeah, yeah. And it's I, funny because the ones in the 19th century would have taken the exact opposite track um, in claiming that they weren't abolitionists, they didn't want to be associated with them, mm -hmm. because abolitionists were seen as a bunch of radicals and cranks and... Mm -hmm. You know, they represented the respectable, wealthier elements of society and thought that, for a lot of them, they thought that being associated with abolitionism would hurt their cause, would hurt their efforts to try to expand their denominations, and instead they just supported uh, African colonization. Hmm. That's a part of the story I don't think gets retold every uh, Sunday morning at the Unitarian yeah. churches when they're trying to sort of narrate their own their own past. That's, yeah, that's really exactly. Interesting. And what, so what's this other project you're working on? Uh, the other project is a study of African-American atheists, agnostics, and secular humanists from the early 19th century to the present. Um, now, this, this book sort of grew out of my own sort of personal interest. Um, I'm an agnostic myself, and... Uh, I started connecting with other um, black free thinkers, as we sort of refer to all those groups. Mm -hmm. um, I started connecting with some of them on Twitter um, <clears throat> and just, you know, checking out the different groups, Black Atheists of America, uh, African Americans for Humanism. Um, I went to their blogs and from there I just sort of started to get interested in what scholars had written about this phenomenon, right? Because mm -hmm. it seems to be growing and a lot more widespread, especially over the past 20 years. So I just kind of wanted to see what was out there. And what I found is that um, one theologian at Rice University, Anthony Penn, and another uh, who just recently passed away, William R. Jones, have written about this. 
um, maybe one or two literary scholars, but that was it. There aren't any historical treatments um, of black uh, atheism or agnosticism. Um, and the one, uh, one kind of major history of uh, American freethinkers by Susan Jacoby, there's really not much mention of African-American freethinkers at all, mm -hmm. right? And I found that a lot of the assumption is that African-Americans are naturally religious. Mm -hmm. um, and this assumption is partially based off of the fact that African-Americans today do make up the most religious um, kind of group in the population. Mm -hmm. Um, if you look at them as a whole, so there's just this kind of natural idea that religion and um, blacks are, uh, blacks are religious, but um, it hasn't been true throughout our history, right? There's nothing natural about religion. Um, your social and cultural context obviously influences what religion you become and what religions you decide to reject. And for a lot of black people, slavery, racism, dealing with Jim Crow, um, dealing with poverty, housing discrimination, all these things have made them just reject this religion that they see as sort of pie in the sky or otherworldly, and it's caused them to embrace uh, secular philosophies. So um, the book is starting in the era of slavery and looking at how um, the conditions under slavery for a small group of people fostered uh, rejections of God and rejections of the idea of God and it's bringing the story up until um, it'll go until 2015 with the sort of um, massive institutional growth in the black free thought community that we've seen especially just over the past few years. <clears throat> well, I mean that sounds like an extraordinary project because one of the ways that we often sort of narrate African-American history whether it's in a big survey class or, or in a more specialized class is to highlight the centrality of, of, of religion as the, mm -hmm. you know, the backbone of, of the slave community and, and the civil rights movement and all these other kinds of things. And yeah, so yeah. And an alternative narrative, I think, is, is very... Yeah, important. I mean, that, that story is definitely a lot complicated, especially if you look at the civil rights movement, for instance. We usually see this as a religious one because of the importance of religious leaders, because a lot of these meetings were held in churches, but, for instance, if you look at a city like Birmingham, Alabama in the early 1960s, there are roughly 400 churches in Birmingham, only 14 of which were engaged in any sort of civil rights activities. So, uh, you know, churches, really, they, they played an important role in the movement, but we can't say that all African-American churches would have supported it, right? Sure. It was, it, it was certainly a minority, and in fact, it's a miracle that churches and religion have come to be associated with the movement, given the sort of conservatism and reluctance of a lot of religious leaders during the time period. But, you know, for a lot of, um, a lot of individuals, secular humanism uh, influenced and pushed them to get involved in the movement. And not just kind of obscure figures. We're talking leaders like A. Philip Randolph and hmm. James Foreman, you know, people really? okay. uh, who are really sort of driving a lot of organizations. Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers. Hmm. <clears throat> that, that's a part of the story I, I, I had never heard about. So I'm really excited to, to read this book when it, when it comes out. And yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Given, too. How, given how productive you are, I'm sure this book's going to come out in about two years. And <laughs> well, I'm hoping to have the manuscript done by the end of 2015. So maybe looking at about four years or so. Yeah. 
one of the things that's always struck me watching your your career since since graduate school is simply how how focused you've been on 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 your work and the way in which you've been able to to sort of persevere uh and i i have no doubt that this is sort of growing out of the sort of transformative experience you had you know uh, when you were you know 19 and 20 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it gives it puts all things in different perspective when you when you sort of realize what uh, you know, life could be like and what you've chosen to sort of not do exactly i mean i i have a vision of my of what my life was like when I was lazy, when I was unorganized, when I, you know, didn't want to do the right thing, I know where that led me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, since the day I got out, February 24th, 2002, which is still like one of the best days of my life, ever since that day, I've decided like I'm going to be a different person and I'm never going to put myself in a position to go back there, right? And yeah. um, it, it's, you know, a dozen or so years away now. It's not quite at the forefront of my consciousness but it still sort of motivates me and and drives me every single day and so you know it's it's been you know a dozen years now what would you if you could speak to the chris that walked out of walked out of jail then what, what would you tell him um to just be patient you know uh, and i think i i was somewhat patient but uh I kind of got down because for, you know, a couple of years, I, could, I couldn't get any good jobs, you know. Nobody wanted to hire a five-time felon, so I worked at Burger King making mm-hmm. crap money all through college, eating ramen noodles every single night. Probably would have went hungry if I didn't have my free lunches from work, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so th- things were fairly miserable throughout college, even though I was sort of in the process of turning things around. Um, but yeah, just tell myself to kind of stick it out, have patience, which luckily I did, you know, because yeah. it would have been easy enough to return to that old lifestyle. I know I had a few friends from the streets who ended up coming to jail while I was there, um, got out before me, you know, served a month or two, and just sort of went back to doing the same thing. Um, so I was, I was lucky enough to be able to just kind of stick out and be patient and, uh, realize that good things would come if I put the work in. Well, Chris, it was really great having you on the show. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that was my conversation with Chris Cameron. As always, you can send us email here at AmericanHistoryUntucked at gmail.com. You can visit the show's homepage at AmericanHistoryUntucked.blogspot.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. You can find us both there. Uh, Until next time, this is your host, David Silkenet.